everybody, welcome back to the broadcast. I've been getting your messages about doing some talks about some of my experiences with some of the great musicians that I've worked with, and I feel like it's valuable uh, to pass on some of this information, some of these firsthand experiences with some of the great musicians of improvised music. I'm Greg Bendian, and today I'm joined by one of my oldest and dearest friends, Tim Blackman. He's a piano player and someone that I consider an aficionado, aficionado of the music of, let's just say, improvised jazz, creative music world, but he's also very knowledgeable about classical music. So we've had many in-depth discussions over the years, and uh, I've chewed his ear off many times, and we're going to do a little bit of that today <laughs> regarding right. the, the great Cecil Taylor and my time with him. So thanks for doing this, Tim. Welcome. Hey, Greg, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Great to continue so many conversations with you about music over the years. Oh, yeah. it's uh, We were just saying uh, it's about 45 years now <laughs> from high school, if not middle school, but yeah, 45 years. And Tim knows very well of my exploits and uh, my thoughts about them. So I thought, who better to pepper me with questions about the great Cecil Taylor? So, Tim, why don't you kick it off and and we'll just we'll go for it. Yeah, let's see. What do, what do we want to start with? Well, so I guess to start, you know, what brought Cecil Taylor to your attention? How did this how did this happen? This come? Well. We both grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, and Teaneck is a very liberal town, very uh, pro-education. Uh, we had excellent teachers from New York City. Our band director, Mr. Joseph Lavelli, was a Juilliard graduate and a student of Vincent Persichetti. So we got the real deal in terms of uh, music education at an early age. And we had a really, really strong uh, music collection at the Teaneck Public Library. And I think like so many of the things that we got into, uh, a lot of it came through reading Downbeat Magazine, uh, reading all the, any music magazines. You know, we were, we were educating ourselves because uh, there was that and there was WKCR Radio uh, from Columbia University that would play such kinds of uh, creative improvised music of all sorts. And I think a combination of, of listening to more and more progressive music and um, more and more looking for the next area of, of challenge, uh, I moved away from rock music into jazz, uh, traditional jazz, and then into what could be considered the avant-garde. Um, of course, the towering figures were Ornette Coleman. Um, Albert Eiler was was very uh, big in our in our in our view. Art uh, ensemble. Art ensemble. Um, who else? Duh. All the AACM guys. Air. Yeah, I remember listening to Time Timeless. You know, the Abercrombie album. I remember getting that out of the library and. And that was, and I followed, I listened to John Abercrombie albums after that, you know. Right. That, and that it mattered. Was, and the whole ECM catalog. Yeah. 
which which included so many of the the great creative musicians like Keith Jarrett and um, all the people that we were listening to, uh, Chick Corea. And I know that um, something about Cecil's playing struck me as being uh, graspable, even though for many people it seems very cacophonic, uh, if that's a word, um, and uh, and very dense and impenetrable. But to me, I, you know, I guess I, I was able to hear his control on the instrument by listening to his solo, solo, unaccompanied piano stuff. And I feel like that that's a big gateway into his music is um, maybe don't listen to the double album, you know, group blowouts first. But if you if you listen to Indent or if you listen to Air Above Mountains, um, any of those records, those early solo records, I think it's very organized. I think it's very um, clear when he's playing written material and when he's improvising and when he goes back to written material. And so as a young composer, a, a musical adventurer, I, I did find it exciting, very visceral. Um, also, like everything else uh, in the New York area, we could get a record out of the library, hear the band, and it might likely be playing in New York City. Let's go. So we would go to the shows, you know, we would go to Soundscape, we would go to the public theater, we'd go wherever right. it was happening. Right. I, I also wanted to say that, you know, the thing you said about Downbeat, I think is interesting because it seemed to me that this was just what you should listen to. I mean, it seemed, it didn't seem that surprising. Like, of course we would listen to this. Right. And and this is something that, that has come up recently too, that I'm glad you mentioned that is, um, we didn't know no better, you know. Like, this this was just music happening at that moment. It was very much the music of our moment, I think, because we had done enough preparation to get to the point where, you know, we're looking for the next challenging, exciting kind of musical approach that wasn't rock. So it was kind of anything outside of that. So maybe even Weather Report leads us there, you know, early right, right, work right. and Wayne. And I was uh, also checking the, the dates and uh, 1978 for Body Meta and for Three Faces. So that was this moment that we started talking about music and go to the library. And that was the new, would have been on the new, you know, sitting right, out so as a new record. Three Faces and the Green Cecil Taylor record on New World Records, which again is it's a government funded NEA, I think, uh, record label. So there was also enough interest publicly to get behind these guys and, and make sure their stuff was heard by the general public. And we were well served by that library. Um, I got all the Nonsuch Explorer stuff out of that library, right? So we heard music from other lands. Gamelon music and yeah. Kodo music. Yeah, drumming from Africa. And I think that and knowing that when you read Cecil talking about music and downbeat, as I did in high school, he's saying, I'm into Bartok. I'm into Stravinsky. I'm into African music. I'm into all sorts of things. And that's right away. That's my kind of guy because I felt as though uh, being very open musically was 
the correct stance. And that I didn't really know yet what I wanted to do. That's another thing. I was kind of exploring, do I want to play free jazz? Do I want to write it all down and wait for someone to to play it or ask for somebody, you know, somebody to pay me to write something. No, uh, we were self-starters. As, as you recall, the, we had our bands, we had our little groups in high school. We played tunes. We, we checked out interstellar space. So, you know, we were doing that. We were trying to do structures and find different ways of verbal communication to get things to happen. So, the AACM was big for that. And just knowing that guys like Cecil, you didn't always know exactly what they were going to do next, but they would change groups. They had regular groups, then they had collaborations. I think the spirit of it was very attractive to me because it was very open. Um, I would come to find that it was less open uh, in the community is in terms of approaches as I got more into it. But no, the marching orders were, you know, do your thing, check out everything you can. And then Cecil also said something that I read in Downbeat, which was never be ashamed of your influences. And I remember that, that taking pride in knowing or not being ashamed of, of knowing classical stuff and how it reflects in some someone like Cecil's music. Um, I remember that being very um, inspiring and encouraging. Huh. Yeah. So what do you think your understanding was of his music at, at the start? A good question. I On my basic level, I was definitely responding to the energy. And the intensity, but I also remember finding a lyricism in there that was both present in his piano playing, particularly the balladic kind of stuff, but also in, in the presence of Jimmy Lyons in the band, where you have a melodic horn player who can shred like Charlie Parker, but he can play a melody and he could play Cecil's melodies and, and they would inhabit the world of breath rather than it being all about a percussion instrument. So there was something for us to hang on to in different ways, you know, the different drummers that he had, uh, Andrew Cyril, Ronald Shannon Jackson, particularly as you point out on Three Faces. Um, they're completely different approaches. So then I saw that you know, he had different kinds of drummers. Right away, I saw that. Steve McCall, um, who was, you know, someone I studied with in high school in an effort to get a handle on what's going on. Uh, Air had just moved from Chicago to the Lower East Side of Manhattan. They played a concert uh, at William Patterson University, where I, I teach to this day. Um, and we were in high school, and we saw Air, and said, Mr. McCall, can I study with you? And he said, well, I, we're coming to New York next month. I mean, you know, the, the moment, right? The timing. Right. Uh, Andrew Cyril was playing and you could go up to him and speak to him. And Mr. Cyril, would it be okay if I took some lessons with you? And, you know, for 
for what would be some of the most valuable interactions for a young guy that's trying to get a handle on what's going on. So it was very much um, accessible in a way. Uh, the guys were around. I don't know if you were with me, Tim, but like we'd be walking down 7th Avenue South and there comes Cecil walking down the street. You know, I was with some high school chums. Is that is that how you originally ran into him? First time I met him. Uh, but it was I was I was nameless at that point. I was just uh, some guy that, you know, some kid talking to him on the street and he was happy to talk to us. Huh. My other friends knew who he was. And, uh, you know, we said, oh, it's Cecil Taylor. Wow. And he's like, hi, guys, how's it going? So he wasn't uh, aloof. And that was also, uh, again, like there are very few of those guys that would have been kind of standoffish. Um, I won't name the ones who were, but, you know, <laughs> there were many of right. those guys were like, wow, anybody that's into this, cool. Right. And of course, you had the, you would, you would take the step. You were fearless to go, and it's nice that they were they responded nicely. But you were willing to put yourself out there, right? And I wasn't discouraged when they were not nice, because I thought, well, he's nice. He might not be nice, but I'll go over here. Um, you know, just uh, the idea that it was happening. Can we get in on it? What could we possibly add to this? Um, you know, when you also begin to realize that Cecil was a guy who practiced a lot. Okay, I better get my chops together. I better get my technique together. I better be able to play my instrument, sound like I play my instrument. I didn't, I think when you talk about first impressions, I didn't know that some free jazz drummers were better than others necessarily. I knew I liked certain ones, but, you know, some guys, many guys were self-taught. Um to quote Doug Lund, the late great bass player, he said, some people are uh, pre-traditional, some people are post-traditional. And the people who start as having a traditional sense and then move into being non-traditional seem to be the right route. So you mm -hmm. want to be able to swing, you want to be able to, to transcribe Max Roach's solos, which is something that I did a lot of. Um, came in handy later. <laughs> I'll tell you about that. Um, so, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter was things were popping, shows were happening, albums were coming out on major labels. They were available. And if you wanted to move from rock to something else, you could and did. And, the shows in general, the concerts were very instructive. Like, how are they? Are they looking at each other? Are they cueing? Is there written music on stage? What, you know, what's the practice? What's performance practice? Right, right. right? So that was very instructive. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's my recollection of the beginnings of it was reading Oh, also, um, As Serious As Your Life, the Val Wilmer book. Right. right. The reading about these guys, uh, anything you could find, there weren't a lot of books compared to now. Right. 
Now, this is a serious area of uh, academic endeavor, and and uh, pianists like Vicky Ray are playing transcriptions of Cecil's solo piano music. So, um, that world, like you, really felt like you were at you were at ground zero for something that was really bursting open, and it had been in existence for almost twenty years, right? You know, if we talk about the earliest stuff with Cecil and Nefertiti, the beautiful one, and uh, Spiritual Unity, Eiler, that's like 61, 62. Okay. You might have the dates. In front I, of I noticed that unit structures, that was the first one I knew, and that's 66. Yes, but before unit structures. But there was stuff before that, yeah. Was Is Jimmy and Sonny, Sonny Murray. So that that kind of thing where he had moved away from the Dennis Charles Buell Neidlinger thing where there's swing time, um, cell walk for Celeste, you know, those kinds of things people would, would know as their, as kind of, Oh, he's, he's jazz, but it's, he's different. Yeah. It's going, it's starting to move there. Um, yeah. I think that, that it was important. It was made clear to me somehow that it was important to have a sense of what had come before so that you could really decipher what was happening at that moment. Right. 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 So, so there was a pretty long time from this moment where you first ran into this until you actually, you know, got going with Cecil. So it was about 10 years, I think for you. So what, what was that development like and how did that get you ready in various ways? Oh, um, well, I mean, Derek Bailey, really, um, you know, finding a place in a improvised music scene, which was thriving in New York, uh, so-called downtown scene at that time with guys like Bill Frizzell, John Zorn, Tom Cora, Ned Rothenberg, um, and seeing Derek come to New York and play with these guys at places like roulette um where now we're seeing no material on stage you have to create from zero uh every piece is a new beginning a new universe um that was now a real side a uh, real uh left turn from hearing free jazz, which was very high energy. Now there were other strategies in place where people play quietly or people play only noise or people would play uh, and then stop and different groupings would emerge from a group. And, you know, I just started to think more wide open about what freedom was or what improvisation was, what the goals were in terms of when is a piece over, you know, when does a piece, how does it begin? How does it end? Uh, what are we doing? What are we not doing in a piece? And I'd still been going to every, I saw to my recollection went every time Cecil played in New York. So I saw all the different groupings. I saw him solo. I saw him, opening or double bill with Oscar Peterson solo uh, at Carnegie Hall, where uh, people were not happy with Cecil, you know, and the way he was playing, but 
we were there rooting for him and uh and of course oscar peterson as well um i knew cecil talked about art tatum i knew that cecil had had a tremendous respect for the pianists that came before him um he knew them all and that that's another thing you know noticing when a guy knows all this stuff you better know a bunch of stuff you better be really omnivorous and and get as much as you can because you, otherwise you'll miss something somebody will make a reference to something and you won't know what's going on and then you're kind of standing there you know flat-footed um and you couldn't be because i the one thing you'll get from those early listening and 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 watching experiences that everyone's really clearly committed and serious about it so if you're just listening to it you might have the misconception of oh this is all random but when you experience it in person and you see it and cecil comes out and it's like a classical recital and he comes in he sits down at the piano and it's just about the music wow. an hour and a half or more um that shapes one's impression of what's really going on here so we were lucky that it was so accessible because you know i talk to people all the time that were in ohio or you know in the south and they just didn't have access to this stuff that we did we were seven miles from manhattan so yeah it was it was definitely um being caught up and 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 pulled into this moment this vortex of uh of activity and then of course going to hear ornette every time he played and um you know going to hear frank wright or frank Lowe or um i got to see donald eiler play with wow. rashid at soundscape wow. sun ra being able to yeah. go talk to sun ra hey guys how's it going you know like you can't trade that for anything you know they were they were happy to see us i mean honestly let's face it they they would have been happy to see anybody because it was still a form of underground to me you know when i look at it it was still a underground movement it was not a mainstream movement even though this is probably the peak of mainstream accessibility right 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 but still this was not am radio this is no and it's it wasn't fm radio really either but but um so one could have the impression that oh this is just what's happening right now right 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 yeah well so so you were you were bouncing along here and i guess you you've been working with derek I mean, how did this happen how did how did it well, actually get going so Eventually, I decided in 83, uh, now's the time for me to start going to New York, uh, meeting these guys, talking to them, and trying to get together and jam. So I remember early to, early on playing with Tim Byrne at his place out in Brooklyn just to do some playing, um, asking anyone at a show that seemed friendly, you know, and that's how I ended up playing with Derek was... He was playing with John Zorn and 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 George Lewis, and uh, had been getting into Derek's music and his whole circle. You know, Jamie Muir, Hugh Davies, or Evan Parker, and uh, 
went up to Derek and said, I'm a big fan. Uh, I'd really love to play with you sometime. And he said, how's tomorrow? So through that experience of a kind of boundaryless musical scene, um, I felt like I knew all as much as I did. I knew Rashid's playing and I knew Andrew's playing. I knew Steve McCall's playing. So I knew these so-called free jazz guys. But then I started hearing these other guys like Paul Lovins and Paul Litton and um, David Moss and uh, Jerry Hemingway and different drummers that were approaching this music in their own, each in their own way. So I thought, okay, those are the marching orders. I have to come up with my own thing. What is my own thing? Well, I really like contemporary classical percussion. I don't find too many of these guys that are that interested in that. And, you know, different tuned cowbells and metals and found objects like bottles and cans. And um, so I, I began developing this setup that would reflect a drum kit and a percussion setup. So it would mean preparing the drum set, clamping down the cymbals or uh, putting chains or vi vibrating things. But, you know, I had picked that up from as much from cage prepared piano as anything. Because uh -huh. I was very struck by that idea that why did cage do that? Because he didn't have room for a percussion ensemble on stage for the dance performance. And he's just thought, well, once you put your hand in there, it changes the sound. What if I put objects in there, rubber uh, erasers and nuts and bolts and things that will interrupt or, or, or sympathetically vibrate? Well, that can work on anything you hit. Piano is a percussion instrument. I can do that on a drum set. Yeah. And that so that kind of became my viewpoint was, I don't know if I'm a, a free jazzer. I don't know if I'm an improviser. I don't know if I'm, because I was still writing chamber music. I was still uh, very involved in, in percussion ensemble music, um, writing percussion ensemble, writing solo, performing solo. So by 84, 85, I was doing solo percussion tours putting all my gear in the car and driving around the country and playing where I could, wherever they'd have me in a gallery or opening for a rock band or at a university. Um, and so this thing that happens to me frequently is, I don't know, it's just something will pop into my head prompted by, I don't even really know what, like now is the time to do this. And I think it was 88. And uh, like I said, I went to see Cecil play everything I could see him do. Sweet Basil with, with McCall and Thurman Barker and, you know, uh, Rashid Bakar and William Parker and, you know, always Jimmy Lyons around. We'd love, we'd wait for Jimmy. Jimmy would stand over on the side, wait for 40 minutes for Cecil to finish his first solo. And then Jimmy would come in and we'd be like, yeah, Jimmy, all right, you know, and he would totally destroy and take his time. Another thing of the, the idea of taking time to build up an idea. And uh, and I think 
at Symphony Space on the Upper West Side, Cecil was giving a solo concert and I'm sitting in the audience. And when he's done, he goes off stage and the stage door to backstage is right there and it's open and he's standing right there, you know, smoking a cigarette or whatever he's doing, talking to people. Look, the door is open. I didn't push the door open. The door was open. <laughs> but you went through it. Doors open. I went through it. Very respectfully said, Mr. Taylor, I'm a big fan of your work. You know, I, I, he didn't remember me from the street or whatever. I said, you know, I, I think I could contribute something to your music. And he looked at me and, and didn't bat an eyelash. And he said, when can I hear you? And I was at that point doing Greg Bendian Project, which was my sort of chamber jazz group. Uh, I had no problem with telling him we're playing next week at the Knitting Factory. If you want to come down, I'll, I'll put you on the guest list. And uh, and he said, OK, uh, here's my phone number. Remind me. I reminded him. We went and played the show. At that point, I had um, acoustic bass, clarinet percussion and I'm trying to think of it I might have had cello or something at that point it was very chamber jazz so like I, we would do out there by Eric Dolphy and as a head and and improvise or we would do my um kind of um open structure um, movable mobile kind of compositions um we played the first set no Cecil Took a break, played the second set, no Cecil. And I'm thinking, oh man, oh well. And as we start packing up, Cecil walks in with a couple of friends. And I just, I see him walk in. And as soon as I see him walk in, I say to everybody in the band, don't pack up, we're playing a third set. <laughs> right? So yeah. we play. We, I play solo first. I mean, you know, what, what, what more could I do? I had been working on a piece dedicated to him in the chance that he would show up. So this is on my first wow. solo um, percussion record, Definite Pitch, uh, Polyanthus. And it was very much uh, fast, clustery stuff with extreme jumps and extreme register kinds of things and i dedicated to cecil and he was there um and he heard that and then we played some other stuff and he was still there at the end and you know we we talked and at that point we sort of launched a friendship um i hung out with cecil on and off just going to shows going to see kabuki at at uh lincoln center I remember Treat Williams, the actor being in the audience, recently passed away. Uh, he was there. Um, you know, it was he Cecil always knew what was going on. So you would go to museums, you would go to see the latest Vin Vendors film, you would go to see dance, you would go to see all of this stuff. And so he was very cultured. And and huh. you know, just the idea of being cultured and being aware and being well read seeing that demonstrated in person 
And Cecil was one of the just the smartest people I ever met. Just so intelligent and so intellectually curious, such a, you know, a voracious reader. Um, everything he did was kind of, uh, kind of extreme and, and kind of over the top. Now, you can try to keep up with that in, in your own little way. Um, and I think I did. I mean, I, I knew I had to play solo. I knew I had to have a group. I knew I had to collaborate. He was a model. You know, he was a kind of a role model for what a creative musician artist type should be. Um, so that was about a year of that. And then, of course, me saying things to him like, you know, Cecil, I'm available. I'm available to play. When uh, when you were talking with him, did it was a conversation, right? I mean, was he interested in your ideas? Did you have to be quick on your feet? And what was that like? Yeah, he'd ask you questions. Yeah, he would ask you questions. He, you know, he. I remember one one thing was that he felt he was in some way a revolutionary. Now I don't know if a lot of people talk about this, but it was like his agenda was, I'm breaking down not maybe just musical boundaries, but but cultural boundaries um, by being interested in non-American resources, by being interested in the Bolshoi, by being interested in architecture from, from uh, Corbusier and being interested in um, poetry, guys like John Ashbery and... Um, um, Ezra Pound and and James Joyce and just you know the hard stuff the yeah. stuff when you're in college you know you're like really struggling with and it didn't go away you know it it was clearly that's his agenda is I'm I'm gonna grow I'm gonna grow my mind I'm going to grow um, by having more and more fodder for ideas for music, extra musical ideas, you know, and that that's another thing that struck me was you see people who are not necessarily writing music that's about music. It's, you know, people have compared him to Jackson Pollock. Well, okay, but just the very notion that Cecil would have known all those painters and would have hung out with them and, and you know, had drinks with them and could tell you stories. I would ask him for stories. He would tell me stories. But he also wanted to hear my music. So I remember vividly playing him a new uh, flute piece that I had written for an Icelandic flute player that I was working with. And he sat there and he listened to it. And he said, your song is very strong. You really, you know, you really are doing what you want to do. Um, so that was a great vote of confidence. Um, and yeah, I would play him play him recordings and he would listen. So he was very open and available to um to, to in a way mentor or to just to, certainly to just demonstrate how one navigates creative life. He was very important for the idea of building a thick skin. Uh, he told me about the wall, which was a concept that I had not known about is, um, you know, when you're in your in your world and you're doing your work, you have to put up the wall and exist within yourself 
to express the purest version of your vision of what it is. So you can't be freaked out if people in the audience are laughing or eating or wow. even commenting negatively. And I had experienced that as well. You know, I had guys come up to me and Quebec and say, you know, it sounds like you're just warming up. What are you doing? I don't, I don't dig it like aggressively, you know, and I, that's only a, a smidgen of what he must have experienced right. in inventing that whole approach. Right. You know, um, dissonance is tough. Dissonance is, 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 a, is a deal breaker for many people. Let's face it. Non-harmonic language. Oh yes. Separates an audience. But I also like that, uh, you know, as again, as a high school student, went to a lecture by Steve Reich at Greenwich House. And he said, when I encounter music or art that I don't understand, I don't write it off and think, well, what's that guy's problem? I think, no, it's my problem. I have to figure it out. Right. And that's still my attitude. <laughs> my attitude. Yeah. I want to hear something that blows my mind i have no idea what's going on but i'm going to try to figure it out i'll read about it i want to know what your basic concepts are i want to know what you're trying to accomplish maybe i can grasp it in some way get a get a foot in the door somehow oh yeah you know you know i certainly remember that the idea that there was something and you were going to have to figure it out you knew how many times you're going to have to listen to it it wasn't going to be pleasant at first because you don't know what it is but if you listen to something enough times, if you read something enough times, you'll you'll start to get a sense about that. But you have to be willing to push yourself. There's a diligence that's required. And if you don't know that, oh, and another great quote. Um, Cecil was being interviewed with Max Roach on television by Studs Terkel. And as I did in the day, and I still have all these, put my cassette player right up to the TV speaker and recorded it. And so I heard Cecil say, you know, artists are workers. I didn't, I never thought of that, you know, because we, we'd probably been brought up to think, oh, you know, artists, flighty, flaky, yeah, yeah. you know, don't feel like it. Oh, I need inspiration. Right. start no Cecil was like he's up every morning practicing take a lunch break practice for the rest of the day and then go out and and have fun at night he was on a work schedule so you know witnessing that kind of thing you get you get a pretty clear picture of what's going to be required of you um so being around that and then of course his circle of uh of musicians everybody knew him you know we we got on the the circle line boat to see Sonny Rollins play uh remember that and uh, people coming up to Cecil and talking to him uh so I got to see Sonny Rollins at that at that moment um yeah it he um he was it was a good hang you know it, it, it would be some really long nights and I could sort of go as far as I could go in terms of, you know, energy. And then I would have to say, you know, Cecil, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. And he'd be like, okay, uh, see you later. And he would go for whatever, whatever the next period of time was. Uh, 
yeah, it, he really was, it was impressive to be in his presence. And then, of course, whenever he played, he always sounded like he was in great shape, great playing shape. He jogged a lot at that time. I remember he was in yeah. incredible physical condition. Um, you know, he had to be to to play. He also uh, knew a lot about sports. So one of the first people to make the connection between sports injuries and, as we now know, musical repeated stress injuries right. that happen to people that now doctors specialize. So yeah. he'd say, yeah, my, my left wrist hurts, but I'm going to play through it. Whereas, you know, he could have said, well, I'm not going to play because my left wrist hurts, but he'd like, he'd know if it was uh, serious enough. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, he certainly was a very athletic player. So I guess he would have to be careful and, I'm right. He wasn't a young man. I mean, I guess it looks to, you know, 50s, 60s when you were when you were working with him, I think. So so I think we know what that's like now. And yeah, you got to be <laughs> you got to be careful. Yeah. And uh, and he would tell me about sports and I would say, Cecil, you like boxing? It's it's so, you know, uh, savage. And he'd say very has very fast hand movements. You know, so that idea of finding something in everything, I may have learned from him. You yeah. know, you're not interested in, I don't know, hockey, but those guys, they're moving at a million miles an hour with this little object that's going hundreds of miles an hour <laughs> flying. You know, if you We're don't think of it as a sport, you think of it as an, oppress an impressive human achievement, right. physicality is in his music so anything that's physical dance sports he's checking it out now i had been involved in sports so this this resonated with me um and i i worked on my you know technique so that i could play fast without getting tired or play fast without losing control um I was lucky to have a really good uh, classical teacher, Gary Van Dyke, who showed me correct technique, why you use the correct technique so that you don't injure your arms and get carpal tunnel syndrome and need surgery like some rock drummers that I won't name. And, you know, it's it's it was serious. You know what I mean? It was it was like as serious as your life, you know, that that was it. Right. Okay. Well, so you'd been peppering him with these suggestions. When did he when did he follow up with you? <laughs> I'd I would do things like, um, Cecil, I'm 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 in your neighborhood and I have my drums. And he'd say, I one of the great lines was, Is that how you think this works? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah, so Eventually, what happened was, um, I you know I was gigging, but I was working temp jobs, office jobs, anything to to pay the rent. And I was working in an office, and I you know would get up every day, and I have to be there by nine or whatever it was. And uh, in March of '89, he rings me up at seven in the morning, and I'm 
I wake up from a dead sleep and it's Cecil and he would never say hi it's Cecil it was just right right into talking which I've now found is something a lot of these these kinds of guys do like you know who it is so it's ding, hello are you available to play with us this evening in Cambridge Tony Oxley is unavailable now I had seen Cecil with Oxley recently so that was another boost because wow. first white drummer to play with Cecil wow. non-traditional jazz slash new music guy from England but you know his setup was all idiosyncratic little objects and self-made instruments and and really strange sizes of things and detuned bongos and you know when you see that you're thinking oh I'm following Tony Oxley it's all good it's open you know I'm not following Shannon Jackson because that would have been hard because I didn't know that you could go away from that but Shannon Jackson I want to say was valuable uh to me because I heard for the first time someone laying down a steady pulse against all the cacophony and all the the maelstrom of sound and thought oh man that takes some guts and of course Shannon had played with Eiler and Ornette and then Cecil so Following Tony Oxley on the band, I drove up, I think I picked up William Parker and we drove up to Boston to play at the Western Front in Cambridge, which uh, I don't think is there any longer. And no rehearsal, no pre-discussion. Uh, and that you come to know that this will be the pattern. He's not going to tell you what or how to play. So you better have some idea of what you do or don't want to do. I was so excited on those first gigs. I played too loud. I remember that uh, people were complaining, you know, the drums are too loud. So I, you know, right away started thinking about that, you know, um, better get, come up with some brush stuff, some mallets laying out. Um, because it was good feedback, you know, to to hear for people to say, well, you know, you're too loud. I never wanted to be too loud. I, I still take great pride in my quiet playing. And that takes a lot of control and technique to be able to play quietly. Well, you then work on that. So, you you know, you I'm already starting to kind of hone in on what my approach would be. And after a few gigs, then I started doing preparing the drums and and changing the sound of the kit and adding percussion items on a table and uh, you know then bringing in the vibraphone and and trying to play pitch things with him because I had seen Thurman do that on marimba um but yeah it was it, it was like you were thrown in you were just thrown in the fact that you had heard him with Tony Oxley just before, did that give you a hint about where he was at that moment? Yes, where Cecil was. Yeah. Yeah, so this this had shown me that you can't assume it is uh, exclusively a Black music form. It's a creative music form. Whomever he needs 
to challenge him or try to go in a different direction. That's all good. He was good with that. Um, I love that. I love knowing that. And then, you know, he'd also played duets with Max Roach at that point. So you see, Max was a huge role model for me as well, because I knew Max had been working with dancers and working with video artists and working with rappers and working with electronic people and, and working with video. And so Max was a big role model for me in that too, because now here he is playing with Cecil um, and he played time. And, you know, Cecil's doing Cecil. So then there's another guy who's thinking about time. One time I was hanging out with Cecil and I said, Cecil, what was it about Steve McCall for you? And he said, the time. Yeah. Not a lot. I mean, you're not going to get really long explanations. I mean, but but just yeah. to get a little window into, oh, time. Uh, simultaneously, I, I've been reading Downbeat. And Paul Motion has an article, and I'm a huge Paul Motion fan at that point, still on to this day. Armenian drummer, composer, band leader. Yeah. And he was in the phone book. So you could call him up and ask him questions <laughs> and bother him. And he would say, hey, man, what are you doing? You're writing a book? But he, you know, he liked it. He's like, oh, this Armenian kid, he's calling me up and asking me stuff. He didn't hang up on me. We talked on the phone. So another funny thing about that is that um, when I got the Cecil gig, I called Paul. I was so excited. And he said, tell Cecil, I said, happy birthday. I said, what? Why do you yeah, we're, we have the same birthday, March 25th. I said, really? You have the same birthday as Cecil? So like, he knew that, you know, they had never played together. And I and I would think things like, what if Paul Motion had played with Cecil? Wow. What if Jack DeJanet had played with Cecil? Right. And so the things that I, I gleaned from Motion and DeJanet and, and, and drummers who hadn't played with Cecil, I thought, well, their approaches could work with Cecil's music. Right. So, like if you listen to the record I did with Cecil and for essence, I think there are definitely moments on there where I'm playing rim shots the way Paul Motion would have to to get more color out of the drum. You know, there are definitely some Paul Motion references on that record. So and the symbol symbol use. Um, yeah, so he Cecil never told me how to play. He never told me what to play. One time he told me, maybe don't play so loud in here. It's a very high ceiling. Um, but generally he'd, he'd give a compliment. He'd say, oh yeah, you took care of it tonight. You know, um, I never felt anything like um, a musical adversarial thing with him, but I did feel it from the critics and I did feel it from the writers and some of the audience who were thinking, you know, Who's this little white kid playing with Cecil? And and that's fair. You know, I mean, it was certainly not something you saw all the time. I wasn't Tony Oxley, so I didn't have stature in the scene. But I also thought it was funny because in the back of my mind, I had, I'm, I'm following Tony Oxley, guys. 
there's nothing for you to to really complain about here. Clearly, Cecil told you by having Tony Oxley, I'm going to have whoever I want. Right. If they're playing something interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so I just threw you into it. I mean, you must have over time, you must have figured out some things like, would you know what tune he was playing? Did you approach the a given tune the same way each time? Right. Uh, no, we didn't. So uh, a little bit about Cecil's notation system. He would have a um, paper, just a blank white um, printer paper, you know, uh, on his, or maybe even a, a spiral notebook on his piano. And he would just write note names, just A, B, C sharp. Um, and then in, in in relation to each other, they might be above or below each other, but they would occupy, say, say like a, a quadrant in the page. And then each of those would um, would be maybe chord ideas or maybe pitch classes or something that he was going to work off either in a triadic fashion, as you know, he'd do yeah. contrary motion. With a multiple parts? So like his left well, hand yeah, below so, the right hand yes. part? Or? It looked like right hand, left hand. It did. So those kind of do 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 you could kind of you could see them, but they weren't indicated rhythmically. They were just groupings of notes, and so yes, they would come out uh, more than once uh, in a, a tour, or you know you'd hear these these musical ideas, but the the very modern or maybe but it's jazz still the idea like well miles was doing all blues slow and then he did all blues fast you know miles tempo changes and stylistic changes were were the de rigueur you know i mean it was not it was not odd that you would play a tune as a ballad but some other night you might play it fast so i was already down with that i mean that was fine um you could play it long you could play it short and yes, things would come back and you would say, well, I did this last time. I'm not doing that this time. Right. Because that's kind of built yeah. in, not spoken about. But if you're paying attention, OK, one of our strategies is material is going to be that day's version of the material, how he feels on that day. How do you feel on that day? What are you going to say about it? You know, what are you going to add? Um. And that's the same thing for William Parker. You know, he he would play some things uh, Arco. He played some things pizzicato, and it wasn't set. And he knew that. So I'm watching. Uh, William also was a great person to study because he'd been there for so long. Um, he also taught me about not getting pulled into Cecil's mood swings. You know where Cecil might be pissed off about something and taking it out on the band and. You know, he might be unhappy, but then another time he'll be like super energetic. And and I'm a kid watching every move and thinking, oh, you know, is oh. he mad at me? Or is oh, he you have to stay calm, stay so you centered. Have, I, I didn't know that. I learned that on that gig. You can get yelled at five minutes before you go on and you got to go on and play the music. 
Now, if you read jazz history enough, you know that that kind of thing didn't just happen in Cecil's band, right? We knew the stories of Miles punching Coltrane and stuff like that. I mean, Cecil was never violent, but, you know, he was moody. And so you had to ride that wave and still be inside the music and, you know, not get pulled into personalities. And I had never experienced that before, really. I mean, I've been in politically charged musical situations before, but this was, you know, you're, you're playing with one of the guys okay. that you'd always admired and you'd think is just the shit and just the de real deal. And if he was unhappy, it was very difficult not to be affected by that. But then you learn how you don't want to be as a band leader. Watching other band leaders and how they treat their band, you learn a lot about what you don't want to do. Right, right. So when you were playing, would, did you was there eye contact? Did you watch him? Did you watch William? How did that go? Well, William never looked up. But, you know, yeah, you know, um, but Cecil would occasionally, yeah, he would look up like, you know, I'm coming to the end of something or, um, you know, I'm, I'm checking out what you're doing. I'm cool with it. Um, cueing, not necessarily cueing. And I think that's something that that is important to know too that audible cues start to become a big part of the music you know you know when he's winding down you know when it can keep going you know that it's going to go for a little bit or it's going to be quiet now and so as free as it is it's still you following cecil's music he's the music um you're accompanying him but you still have a voice in it you're you're arranging so that what he's doing could be clear you don't want to as i did in the early you know gig uh cover up what he's doing because it's about he you know he's the music he's the direction and you're following that direction and you want to be prepared to do something interesting um but i also employed some things that i had not heard other drummers do like laying out because when you're playing with Derek and you're playing with improvisers sometimes you don't play sometimes you stop and you listen and you let other people take it and their direction changes where the music's going so now you have to then adjust your thinking because you could have I always felt that it was useful to have some preset idea before you start free improvising that you can either either a shoe or you know you can really you know hone in on if you need it. Sometimes it's obvious. I don't know how obvious, but obvious to me, what I need to do. Okay, well, if he's playing quietly, I'm not going to suddenly come in loud. You know, I, or wait a minute, see where it's going before you jump in. Right. Don't just jump in all the time. Right. Um. So it's partially not make trying not to make a fool of yourself, but it's also, you know, trying to be musical. And I liked him playing solo, and I liked hearing hearing him play with William to sort of 
shine a light on what the two of them were doing. So I would, I could lay out or I could go to brushes or I could go to something that was very unobtrusive. And, um, and then all of a sudden you're hearing them play duo. And, and so that, that kind of thing of um, being prepared enough to, or mature enough to not overdo it and to know whose music it is and what it is and, and, and not, well, look, a big part of it is you don't want to screw it up. I don't know if that's, that's even too obvious to say, but you don't want to mess it up. And I'd heard enough drummers mess up free jazz situations, uh, uh, you know, too loud or too much. And, you know, I'm listening to the sax player. I want to hear the sax player end you. I don't want to just hear you covering up the sax player. Right. And you get enough dirty looks early on, or you, you know, you get enough feedback and then you, you learn, you're learning, you're learning on the job. Right. Right. Now he wasn't, following you you were accompanying him right yes i i'd say that you could hear me respond to him and sometimes i think you could hear him respond to me but that wasn't typical it was he knew what he wanted to play and it was just up to you to decide what to do with it right right yeah, so you've done this. You had done a few of these gigs. How did the how did the recording come about after that? Well, that's another funny story of of someone not showing up. Um, the I only later found this out because I I was a, I was at my office job. St I still had the office job because it was a couple months into me joining the what was called the field trio it was cecil taylor field trio and uh and i got a call at or i checked my messages i don't i, don't, I wish i could call recall exactly it's you know check your machine and uh can you be at rca studios at 4 p.m today and i i was at work <laughs> so i had to finish I figure out a way to leave work early. And to this day, I thank uh, my elementary school friend, Brad Jones, the bass player, who we were sharing a house at that time, musician house in Teaneck. I said, Brad, I just got called for the Cecil record. There's no way I'm going to be able to get home, pack up my stuff and, and get to the gig, to, to recording in Midtown. Would you please help me you know, get my gear together? And he's like, yeah, okay. You know, wonderful thing of, of, of uh, Brad to do that. And so I, you know, rushed home, got my gear, went to RCA Studios, which is no longer there. It was one of the great recording studios where Toscanini recorded. Um, so we recorded in the Toscanini room, beautiful wooden room where you could, panels could be moved to change the acoustics of the room uh panel materials could be changed to to change alter the acoustics yeah. and i get there and i'm i'm setting up and i find out from the producer john snyder 
who was now producing this whole series of uh, American jazz masters for AM records. I mean, I, I find out we're on a major label. I find this is a major label records. And we knew Cecil's records. We there were no major labels in America that were putting his stuff out. Right. So so the ante gets jumped pretty fast. And um and then he says to me, John Snyder says, Yeah, we we were trying to make this uh a reunion with Cecil and Sonny Murray. And Sonny Murray didn't show up. <laughs> now <laughs> it's funny because Andrew Cyril told me that's how he got the gig. When Sonny Murray stopped showing up, there was Andrew. So I here I have this experience of um, now finding out it's Sonny Murray was going to be the, the drummer on the trio. And do I have to play like Sonny Murray? I didn't think twice about it. I thought, first of all, this is, I love the idea of doing a studio record with Cecil because there were really, really very few ensemble studio records. I think previous to that, there's, there'd been unit structures and, you know, the couple of blue notes, the, the door, um, you know, the new world records. And um, here we are in the studio where you can play quiet and you can get a good sound. And my drum kit could be well recorded and, yeah. Piano would be a beautiful piano sound and wouldn't be out of tune right away. And, you know, the bass was going to get recorded direct and with a microphone. And, you know, it was it was top notch. Joe Lopes, one of the great recording engineers, he was he was the recording engineer. Um, Jay Newland was the the uh, assistant engineer who went on to do incredible things. So um, it was a, it was a really good atmosphere to go into where we're taking time to get the right sounds. Uh, we didn't run through anything. These have been pieces that we played live. I recognize them. Saida. Um, oh, you knew them by but, names. Had he called out the names? No, 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 no. I did not know them by name. Uh, uh, I knew them by sound. Uh, I see. So you get an idea of what like Saida would maybe be a kind of a ballad thing, but but you're still you're feeding off of whatever he's doing. It might have been something we played fast and and long, yeah. but now we're now we have this idea where John Snyder wanted Cecil to do shorter pieces because it's on AM Records. It's a, there's a chance to maybe reach a few more people because John knew, well, what's the Achilles heel of Cecil's music? Is you know, he plays long and the audience can't hang. Now he's got to present him to a, a major label uh, buying audience. And that series, which was incredible, had Don John Cherry, Multiculti, there's a Frank Morgan, there's Max Roach Quartet, there's Sun Ra. Sun Ra, yeah. You know, it was a cool series. And so, yeah, it was, John had gotten Cecil to agree to do short pieces. Um, and then in the middle of it, uh, we took a break and and Cecil said, we've been asked to do solo pieces. So I think William played a solo piece. And then I played uh, very spontaneously. He said, go ahead. And I, I said, this is for Steve McCall. And I played that short one minute snare drum piece. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, when I was done, I said, 
was that okay? And they said, yeah, do another one. Now, I didn't know if they were going to use them both. So now I go completely to the non-jazz world and I'm starting to do bowing cymbals and sheet metal and chains are rubbing and everything's kind of textural. I wanted to create something that would develop over a little bit of time. Um, and it's still a short piece, but Entity became the second piece. And then Cecil did his solo piece. Oh, in the same, in that same that gesture. Same yeah, okay. You know, like yeah. everyone's going to do their solo pieces and other people are going to just hang. Um, and then, then other strategies, you know, and, and what I was doing too on that was employing this, this idea that I had been doing with Derek, which is every piece I want to try to approach it differently and make it special. One piece I'll, I'll play brushes, one piece I'll play sticks, and one piece I'll play quick changes between loud and soft and brushes and, and mallets. And one piece I'll use percussion table and another piece I'll um, prepare the drums and, and the cymbals. And a, not a peep, you know, Cecil's fine with that. No one's ever saying to me, I think in a way, John Snyder might've been relieved that, oh, at least this drummer's not blowing a bunch of BS all over the place. He's, you know, he's considering each piece. Well, well, Greg, was this not what you had been doing when you, you were playing with them, at, you know, live? Is, was this different in the studio? This was like a uh, condensed version of what I had been doing live at that point. And, and it was, like I say, an ideal platform because the sound in the room is amazing. You can hear everything. We weren't set up far away. There was baffles between us, but I don't, I think we had headphones and and you could, you know, you could play in a way that wasn't the way you played live because when it goes down to quiet, there's no tinkling glasses or people chit-chatting. So there's much more of a sense, I think, on inflorescence of a chamber feel to the thing where you could play gently or uh, meticulously and it would translate it wouldn't be like going like this where people are there for the energy or people are there for the... so it's a unique setting in this way in his in his discography uh yeah so you know then things like laying out i would stop suddenly and then even on on another piece charles and the um i didn't play at all so it became a duet between cecil and and william yeah. And no one ever said to me, why aren't you playing? Yeah. You know, so you're able to, you know, it, it was a really unique situation because it, everything counted. There was nothing thrown away. I think we didn't do multiple takes of things, but I remember the session taking uh -huh. eight hours. There might've been two takes of some things. I see. And then... um and then at the end, uh, you know, Cecil told us what we were getting paid and, and it was not insignificant. It was a really serious chunk of change. And uh, also found out then, you know, I was getting publishing. So I was going to retain publishing for my solo pieces. And then 
at the end of this, the session, John Snyder said, let's just do one more thing. Just play completely free. Now, I want to tell you a, a, a Jimmy Lyons story that was told to me by Lewis Porter. To think that these gentlemen were just winging it could be you could have that misconception you could think oh you know it's just so random and they're just you know blowing their guts out but Lewis Porter told me he did a duet saxophone concert with Jimmy Lyons and Jimmy Lyons and he were putting together the material for the concert tune of Lewis tune of Jimmy you know maybe a Cecil tune and then Lewis said to Jimmy and then we're just going to, I want to just play a free piece. And Jimmy said, oh, I don't play free. I play off of material. Huh. So, well, that, so what, is, what does that mean then about that piece? So this is the last piece on the album, Feng Shui. Feng Shui. And it, it does sound a little different. I thought that the, the interaction style was different. What? what? Maybe that's what it is. I mean, maybe that's at the point where we're on equal footing and it's less about Cecil following Cecil and more about, well, what are you guys going to do as a group? Right. And there's that long pause in the middle of it where you just hear the lower register ring. Another thing that you don't hear a lot in Cecil's music is just the band stops and then there's... And, you know, having the good sense to say, wait, wait this is a cool moment don't blow it so you i waited for cecil to to change the moment and then it starts up again and yeah it is uh and then it's a three-way uh publishing split on that tune too right. so that was handled like properly you know it was these are cecil's tunes this is a group composition which i think really is what free improvisation is, is group composition. And yeah, that was the last thing on the session. And you can tell because the piano has been knocked out of tune. I, I, what kind of piano was it? Do you remember? The Busendorfer. It was a Busendorfer. I oh, thought yeah. so because it had that, there's this, you know, those sounds that they sound like hitting metal plates because they're so low. So, you know, he, he asked for the Busendorfer. He used the Busendorfer. You know, when he had the extra low notes, they were there for a reason. Um, yeah, I just wish there had been a, you know, on-session piano tuner. Yeah. That would have been something. Cecil Taylor is going to come in and play the piano for eight hours. Uh, you might want to have a tuner on hand. Yeah. This is a workout for everyone, including the piano. Yeah. Other than that, you know, really smooth session. Uh, Cecil was happy. It it went smoothly. It, it was, uh, you know, then uh, in the middle of the session, he hands us text. So we had we got sheets of paper that had uh, his poem about the goddess of green flowing waters, which I believe was a Aztec goddess that you know he had been always studying other cultures and ancient cultures and ancient um, civilizations. And so he didn't tell us how to pronounce any, any of these names. 
any of these sounds. It was completely interpretive. So you choose what part of the page you wanted to read and vocalize. And that piece, that's the longest piece on the album. I think it's like a 10 minute piece. And that was then envisioned as a um, something happening, happening in a um, almost ritualistic setting in a, in a, in a larger hall, the reverb is increased. The spatialization of the, of the people is increased. Wow. Doing vocal sounds. William's doing vocal sounds. Cecil had been doing vocal sounds um, as we knew he did in, in his concerts anyway. And, uh, and that was near the end. And I think that was the thing. So the record yeah. is kind of almost the way we ran the day yeah. in sequence. I think you know, another thing. Yeah. Uh, another thing I noticed about that tune is it. It seemed like it reminded me more of a contemporary classical piece. That one, Cecil's texture seemed more varied, and it seemed like you interacted more. Maybe, well, I don't know why. Maybe because while he was making vocalizations, you were more open to do other things. Right. So I played percussion table rather than drums. I don't think there's really any drum set playing on that goddess piece and of course you know i had great moments where cecil you know would come to see one of my concerts and he'd come backstage and ignore everybody in the room and just say bendian did you hear the new elliot carter <laughs> yeah i did let's talk about it you know well, what did he say about that sort of music? When you talked to him about that, what did he say? Well, don't forget, if if people followed Cecil's solo career, they know at a certain point in the 90s, early 90s, he's doing duo concerts or split bill with Roger Woodward, the great uh, Australian pianist who was a Zanakis specialist. They, they would switch who play first half, who play second half, but you'd hear a lot of piano that night and Zanaka's solo pieces and then Cecil's solo. And I, of course I asked Cecil about it. He's like, oh yeah, you know, uh, we're very interested in Zanakis and I are very interested in sound masses and we're very interested in, in orchestrating on the instrument. And, and so we'd have like specific conversations like, it wasn't um, surface detail. It was, he was really interested in Zanakis. He was genuinely interested in Bartok. He was genuinely, you know, Cecil, what's your favorite Stravinsky piece? Agon. Not even, don't bat an eyelash. Like, right. doesn't choose a classic. Goes right. with, you know, do you know Agon? Well, that's from special, his telephone period. You special know, Special sound. It's a different Stravinsky. And so, it's not like he knows the, all the first few Stravinsky pieces that everybody knows. He's he's deep catalog. Um, so then you go and check out Agon, you know, like, oh, I don't really, I gotta get, get on this Agon thing, you know? Yeah. Constantly, you know, learning about that. Well, and it's interesting that he might've been willing to um, analyze that music when he wasn't willing to talk about the, the stuff you were doing with him. Well, he certainly appreciated it. I mean, to what degree he analyzed things, I think his ears were incredible. I think his ears could tell him so much. Um, because, you know, what you get with Cecil, I think that's important, is form. 
there's a kind of form that's imposed on something that seems like it's totally free. So he's, to me, he's keeping track of which notes he's using, which notes he's not using. And then he's keeping track of when all the notes, as that's the title of uh, one of the documentaries, right. all the notes. So then there's the time when it's all the notes are possible. And, and, and so there's, uh -huh. so, so you, so I found that contrast uh -huh. was in his MO. He, he, he was interested in contrast registers, high, low, right. Right? right. And that he call and response with himself. Talk. He did talk about call and response with him when he's playing piano. Like here are the high voices. Here are the low voices. Right. You know? um, so I know that he was orchestrating and I knew that he knew orchestral music and I, and you could talk to him about it. I, so for that reason, I felt not just uh, comfortable, but compelled to act in kind with how I approached my kit, you know, no, no drums for a while, no bass drum, just snare drum, just cymbals, you know, um, these were things that, that, you know, I heard in other kinds of music, but certainly when you hear it in his music, you're saying, well, obviously the guy is organizing on some level what he's doing, even if it's broadly like register or volume or density, right. you know, and and knowing that he had read about Stockhausen and, and that he had, you know, known, gone to the premieres of, of classical music concerts when these pieces were new, you know, uh, Night Fantasies by Carter, you know, just huh. knowing, yeah. knowing that he cared about classical was huge for a kid coming out of classical that loved atonal music and 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 Verez and you know even Zappa and all the flurries of of Zappa's music you know they're not unrelated um everybody's responding to modern art in some way contemporary 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 art um so you should be too right right well, what do you, what do you think you, I mean, this only lasted for so long. What yeah. did you, what did you take from it going forwards? I, did you continue to use, I mean, we're not going to find somebody else who plays the piano this way. No. So, so what, what gets, what gets, gets, what remains? What remains is, um, just the idea that you have to do your own thing. Certainly organization of seemingly wild and woolly ideas, uh, more control than you think is obvious on the surface is in play. Um, thinking of a group as both a jazz group and a chamber group. Um, I got called to play with a lot of you know, Cecil wannabes after that. I worked with pianists that thought that they were, you know, coming out of Cecil, but I found them sort of lacking in terms of that uh, control and the contrast and just 
you know, the, the idea of a form, um, I was, you know, having studied composition in high school, I was early thinking about form. I, I wanted to know what the beginning, middle and end of anything would be. Why? Why? You know, why would you do that in the middle? What's how does this end? L you know, little things, which are huge things like that. You could say they're little things, but they're they're kind of the biggest things. Right. Organizing. So solo, organizing it, group, organize it. Even if it's totally improvised, have some sense of organization, which I think is also why, why the last piece Feng Shui make, makes sense on the record, because we had done so many other things that day, we didn't do that yet. So now what didn't you do yet? So the freshness, the idea of renewal, the idea of, but you see again, I remember studying Boulez and Boulez saying constant renewal. The reason you have so much trouble following uh, Le Marteau is constant renewal. It's ah. not repetitive. Right. So, you know, you kind of had this idea of verboten, too much literal repetition. I, I can get with that because yeah. literal repetition can be boring. So what if you say there's no literal repetition? There's always only organic transformation in anything isn't that what's cool you know and i put that into my flute piece or i put that into my string writing or, or whatever it is so yeah um it was it was a confirmation that you could be interested in all of your things and find a way to weave them together and maybe it would make sense to other people besides you right 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 maybe that's the greatest lesson of Cecil for me. Right, right. I mean, I, I've been noticing his name mentioned by artists now. I'm not sure, you know, I don't know if that always was happening, but I'm noticing it now with pianists and, and so on. And I wonder if some of it is that just the idea that you could have your own idea and it's okay to have your own idea and carry it out. It could be anything. And because if he was, ra the thing that surprised me is if he, came up with a radical idea about how to restructure music. Why wouldn't he try to get other people to, to do his same, his restructuring, but he didn't seem to do that. Right. He wasn't, he didn't seem to be interested that much when he did get large, larger forces, uh, either his orchestra of two continents or the FMP thing where he went over and played with the European groups and had larger groups. He didn't get into micromanaging that to my chagrin in, in many ways, because I wanted to hear that implemented, you know, yeah. in, in an ensemble. Yeah. Uh, the closest I got to experiencing that was when he was commissioned by the Kronos Quartet to do a string quartet. And they only got what he put in front of himself in the piano, which was note names. So he gave the string quartet groupings of note names, pitch classes, whatever you want to call it, and said, you go now, make this into something. So performer involvement, wow. clearly huge for him every day of the week. So it's string quartet, Kronos quartet, you guys figure it out. Here are the notes. And I went to the premiere and it sounded like Cecil's triadic movements and his, his note groupings. And it came across. And to me, that was very um, rewarding because I knew it, it worked. 
And then I um, basically adjusted that idea and used the idea of pitch names only, not register specific, but chords that would be explored in pieces like eye zones and sleeves of alloy and alloy and uh, some of my pieces that would just be about notes that are not, you know, four notes at a time, right. five notes at a time before you move on yeah. deal with these notes, because it's not all the notes all the time. Right. That I definitely got from working with Cecil and seeing his scores and seeing his methods. Um, but then you also saw it in Feldman where, you know, he's just dealing with six notes at a time or four notes at a time and just displacing them. And isn't that interesting? Oh, it's as a second, it's interesting, but as a ninth, it's also interesting. What about that? You know, and then that idea of close, wide, wide, close, and you see those things as generalities, but they are existing in his music and in other composers' music. Now, the way people treat materials, uh, everyone's different, but generally, pitch classes, as you know, were that was nothing new, right? And um, right. inverting things, reimagining an idea, resetting variation, that's in his music. So yeah, I learned a lot in that time. It was it was probably the better part of a year. Um, we continued to do shows after the record, um, playing festivals. We played it at Lincoln Center, at Alice Tully Hall as a trio, and and I we're in Lincoln Center now. We're playing in a, in a chamber music hall. So I'm going to bring you know orchestral percussion in addition to my drum set. Uh, you know, and again, Cecil was into it. Never, never said, don't do that. Orchestral, like chimes or timpani or? No, a concert, bass drum, uh, temple blocks, vibrant yeah, yeah. glockenspiel, you know, yeah, yeah. this kind of stuff. Anything to expand because it's a trio. So yeah. conceivably there's space yeah. for, for everybody to do stuff. I mean, you know, I love that William played with the bow and pizzicato, you know. I continued to always write for bass players that play with the bow. You know, uh, that that turns it over to chamber because not a lot of jazz bass players were, you know, adept at the bow. So yeah, it was, it's an incredible experience that I treasure and I, I still think about it. And, you know, I encourage people to listen to, to Inflorescence because it's a unique record in his discography. There's so many, but very few just studio recordings, and and the short the short pieces, right? And and that was fu a funny thing about the short pieces because through the short pieces record, more people have come to know his music from college because when free jazz or that avant garde jazz would be taught, they could just drop down, you know, on one of the pieces on inflorescence and say, this is what it is in four minutes. Get it? And so that's how Milford Graves and I became friends is he was using it to teach at Bennington. Yeah. So he, he, when I met Milford, he knew me from the Cecil record. When I met Bill Dixon teaching at Bennington, he used the same record. So Bill Dixon, again, another guy that had played with Cecil, 
appreciated that record. And I think it, in a way it was it was a record that people had been waiting for, like Cecil Bite Size and um, Fly, 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 Fly right. had short pieces also. Same thing, yeah. So I think we knew that already before I recorded with him, of course. And so, yeah, that was one other time where right. he wasn't only long form. I mean, okay, a lot. A lot. <laughs> But, but there was know, another possibility. Of course. And he would, of course, ex he would have explored that. And he did. Yeah. Yeah. So there you have it. Quite a story. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite an opportunity to, you know, when I first heard this album, right, this is the album, right? And to hear your sounds with him. These sounds that I had already heard with you, you know, funny little damp symbols or you know, like things with malice and stuff. Like, wow, what a what a what a surprising experience. Right. And the 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 um the go-ahead, you know, the that you you could do it and no one batted an eyelash. Prove to supporting me. You. Yeah, the the idea that um when you say, I want you to do everything that you want to do, and I'm not going to say, but don't do that. I adopted that. I adopt it now. I use it in the Mahavishnu project. You know, I, I'll tell the guitar player, I want you to do everything you want to do. I don't want you to play like John McLaughlin. We'll play the material. Right. But when, when it comes to improvising, I'm giving you the keys to the car please feel free to use them. And really? Like, no, really. And then they do it well, and I don't right. say anything. And then they're like, oh, I guess he means it. Because that's what I was exposed to. The guys who said, do whatever you want. When Ornette said, do whatever you want to me for the timpani part that I played on the statue, he meant it. And he never said, don't do that. He said, do whatever you want. And I did whatever I wanted. And he said, cool. You got to hand it to those guys, you know? Uh, they meant that because in the another great lesson is that if ideally jazz is a democratic music. Now there may be leaders, there might be a, a you know right. an echelon system, but the voices do get some sort of egalitarian treatment along the way, and that that's not necessarily true in orchestral music, is it? Well, it's not always true in jazz music either. This wasn't a cutting session. They weren't going to make, they weren't out to make you look like a fool. The idea was was to bring everybody's best together. It was it presumably it, 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 it was engaging for him. This is what he wanted. Right. And what he genuinely saw and, and achieved successfully on a regular basis. So I knew it was real. I knew I knew that it was not only about him. Um, and when you look at these, the groups where it's contrapuntal in nature, I think that's interesting. Multiple voices engaging. Right. That's Carter too. You know, think about oh, the yeah. second string quartet, you know, it's four independent voices and you know that did not get past people like cecil you know if 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 you know that 
one of the options is everybody's not listening to each other. <laughs> what do you get? Different kind of energy. And also the city music. I think Carter and Cecil, it's New York City music. There's they, a lot going on all the they time. They will tell you that. It's boisterous. It's it's clang and bang. It's everybody talking at once. You get enough parties and and club situations, and you and you're listening, and you're trying to follow four different conversations that are going on around you. That that was training. I did that. You know, listening to what Cecil's talking to Butch Morris about while I'm listening to two of his friends talk about Cecil. I'm listening to two other people talk about something unrelated. And yeah, I think that's that's really what it is. It's real city music. It's city slicker music. You know, it's a, you you don't get that music if you live in, in the countryside of Vermont, you know. You know, George Crumb comes up with that music because he's coming from the farmlands of Pennsylvania, I believe. Uh -huh. And and it's a totally different soundscape. So right. Right. I think there's a, there's something to that. Huh. Maybe we should leave it there, Tim. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Always a pleasure to talk with you about this stuff. Fine. Well, everybody, my guest host, Tim Blackman, thanks so much for, for the friendship and all the great years of, of chats and and really going for uh, the details. And uh, thank you, everyone, for, for watching the broadcast. We've got a lot more stuff coming up uh, with some of the key figures from British Prague and elsewhere, as always. Stay tuned. Please hit us on Patreon. Please like and subscribe and we will keep it coming for you a lot of more stuff coming this year see you next time thanks tim